When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Two neighbors from the same village fall in love and elope to a shelter for couples that break caste norms. A Hindu woman falls in love with a Muslim man, drawing the ire of Hindu nationalists. Two women start a lesbian relationship together. These three couples are the protagonists of Mansi Choksi's The Newlyweds, Rearranging Marriage in Modern India. This book charts the lives of Dawinder and Nitu, Monica and Arif, Reshma and Preeti, who all break social norms in their relationships and are forced to endure the sometimes violent consequences, not always successfully. Mansi Choksi is a graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism and two-time Livingston Award finalist. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, National Geographic, The Atlantic, and more. She lives in Dubai with her husband and son, and The Newlyweds is her first book. Today, Mansi and I talk about the three couples in her book and what their struggles tell us about love, relationships, and social pressure in today's India. So, Mansi, thank you so much for coming up for, for coming on the show. I, I want to start with maybe just a question about your process of writing the book, which is, you know, how did you find these three couples and what, how, how did you find these three couples and what drove you to write a whole book about them? Um, thanks so much for having me, Nicholas. Um, this book began as a magazine piece for Harper's. Um, I had heard about the Love Commandos um, several years earlier. Um, the Love Commandos were featured on a very popular Indian TV show called Satyamev Jayate, which is, um, you know, 
sort of India's equivalent um, of Oprah. Um, and Satya um, Jayate had run an episode, um, of, you know, describing the Love Commando's work um, as, you know, a, a group of men that, um, you know, put their lives at great risk to protect young Indians who wanted to marry for love, but feared doing that because of, um, you know, social consequences. Um, so I actually went in trying to do a piece on the Love Commandos, and I wasn't the first person that um, had spent time with the Love Commandos. They're written about widely. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I really went in thinking that I was going to write a particular kind of story. And as I um, spent more time at the Love Commando shelter, I started to learn that, or at least I had a, I had a feeling that the story was something else. Um, as I spent more time at the Love Commando shelter, it became clearer that, um, in fact, this was a group of. Um, of vigilantes that had discovered that there was money to be made, um, you know, in this idea of Indian modernity. Um, and as long as that, as long as they kept couples at the shelter, donations would keep pouring in um, from people who wanted to support intercaste and interreligious marriage. Uh, you know, largely, um, you know, Western uh, people and um, uh, you know uh, the diaspora. Um, uh, when I went to the shelter in 2016, it was the winter of 2016. That's when I first met uh, Nidhu and Devinder. Um, and when I, and you know, when I sat down to talk to them, I instantly fell in love with Nitu. I just thought she was fantastic in a way that um, her story and her personality summed up, um, you know, a part of, um, a, you know, a, a, a kind of India that we don't really see in, um, you know, mainstream news and, um, um, you know, stories that um, don't, I, I thought that she embodied a kind of story that kind of um, uh, slips out um, of the cracks of the kind of narratives that come out of India. Uh, for What I mean by that is that she's a young um, woman that is uh, raised in a small village and, um, you know, always sees herself as a kind of girl that is meant for bigger and better things and bigger and better places. Um, she, she sort of sees herself as the protagonist in a Hindi film um, that nobody's watching. Um, and, you know, it, um, um, I, I just thought the aspirational aspect of her personality um, was, uh, was something that is so um, relatable in uh, the India that I grew up in, but, you know, not really captured in um, in books and um, magazine pieces uh, that I was reading. Um, so that that's actually what drove me uh, to spending more time with uh, Neetu and Devinder. So I hung out with them um, for a few weeks at the Love Commando shelter. Um, and, um, and then this magazine piece was accepted, and then I returned um, to spend time with them. Um, that's how I met Neetu and Devinder. Um, um, after the magazine piece came out, um, I, I, I realized that I really loved writing this piece. And there was something about this particular topic that had um, drawn me to it. Um, you know, India has one of the world's largest populations of young people. Um, it is a country that, um, you know, yeah, is, is every city village um that you visit in india you have that you have you you know you get a sense that this is a really young place um 
And it's also what's interesting about um, this particular demographic is that it is entirely different in terms of um, social, political exposure from their parents' generation. We grew up at a time, um, you know, when the economy was liberalizing, um, you know, with the advent of um, internet and social media. Um, and just, you know, we grew up with a sense um, that we were in a really ascendant part of the world was set to be the next superpower. Um, so there's this great optimism that I think a lot of us um, who grew up in um, the late um, 80s and onwards um, carry with us. Um, and, you know, as we've come of age, those those dreams have, um, have um, taken a downward turn um, um, in terms, you know, like the, the economy hasn't been able to develop um, at the pace that we imagined. Um, um, and, and more than that, um, modernity has a really complex meaning in India. It can mean um, several things to several people. Um, and I, what, what was interesting to me is that um, in many ways, our young people are not different from um, our parents' generation. A survey was conducted not long ago um, where a lot of young people said that they opposed intercaste marriage, they opposed marrying for love, um, they opposed um, you know marrying outside of communities and religious lines. And I thought that was really interesting because we were... We had all the factors and, um, um, and and kind of conditions to to think differently, but that didn't really happen. Um, and uh, you know, the six people that I follow in this book are exactly the kind of young Indians that are that are that have a really deep sense of filial duty um, and are raised um, to not um, surpass boundaries of tradition. Um, yeah, so I wanted to focus on, uh, on on young people, and that's what drew me drew me to the book. But to answer, uh, to answer your question, the second couple, Monica and Arif, um, uh, um, I found because I went deliberately looking for a couple that um, would say something larger about India. I wanted to write a book that um, that that uses the love story as a vehicle. Um, to explore the larger themes shaping India. So one was um, Nitwan Davinder, who were telling me something about um, the state of caste prejudice in modern India, um, while also telling me something about, you know, uh, uh, a group of men that had, um, you know, created a niche in this capitalist economy. Um, so now I wanted to look for someone that could say something about India's lurch to the right. And I thought, um, you know, uh, I was reading in the news constantly about um, couples that were being entangled in the idea of love jihad, which is uh, a narrative that is pushed by the Hindu right wing, a conspiracy theory um, that says that um, young Muslim men lure Hindu women into marriage and conversion in order to water down the Hindu majority. Um, so I went looking for them. I read a news snippet about um, Monica and Arif in uh, one of the newspapers, um, and I tracked them down and I asked them uh, if I could spend time with them. So that's how that happened. Um, and then I also went searching for um, Reshma and Preeti. I wanted to I wanted to write a story about same-sex love, um, which could illustrate something larger about India's colonial history and um, you know. Um, Section 377, which is um, a legislation that has, um, you know, kind of um, stayed on despite um, um, several years of independence. And, um, you know, you know, just the idea of um, um, how colonial um, history has affected the way that uh, um, young LGBT people in India, um, you know, express their identities and their love for each other. 
but I wanted to make a deliberate effort to look for not um, a same-sex couple from a big city, but from, you know, as, as they say, the margins of society. I wanted to look for uh, women. I wanted to look for working class women. And I wanted to look for women that um, uh, did not come from big cities. So that's how I ended up uh, with uh, Reshma Priti. So I, it, there's a lot there that I want to get into. And, and, I, and I definitely want to focus on this idea of um, of, of how... Of, of, of how these social norms kind of still kind of persist today. But I did want to maybe start by talking about Dawinder and Nitu um, and specifically asking, you know, what, what was the social norm that their relationship broke? Uh, why, why did, why were they forced to, um, I guess, elope and run to the shelter? I mean, because they're next door neighbors. Um, you feel like it, but falling in love with the girl next door is like kind of such a standard trope outside of this context. So what what norm in effect did, did these two people break when they decided to run away together? Yeah, um, so there's a couple of norms that they break by being together. One is that they come from different religious communities. Um, Davinder is Sikh and Neetu is a Hindu. Um, they might seem, um, uh, you know, I, you know, it, it, it's common to believe that uh, Sikhism comes under the Hindu fold, but, um, you know, in, in villages, this is a pretty vast difference. Um, the second thing is that they come from different castes. Um, Davinder comes from um, a lower caste compared to Nitu, which is marginally lower caste. It's a very complex kind of structure um, of hierarchy, um, you know, of castes. But they, they come from different castes, where, which places uh, Nitu's family at a, at a higher stature. The third thing is wealth and class. Um, Neetu's family is wealthier. The her father is a landlord who has his own fire truck shop, firewood shop. Um, I'm sorry, uh, fire truck. I've been spending too much time with my toddler. Fire firewood shop, um, and um, uh, Davinder's uh, father is um, a truck driver um, who has spent most of his life um, driving uh, freight trucks. Um, so class is, a, is, a, is also a massive difference. Uh, but most importantly, it is the fact that they are from the same village. Um, according to Indian rural custom, um, especially from the region that they come from, um, men and women from the same village are considered to be brothers and sisters. Um, that is, uh, you know, it, it kind of puts their relationship under the umbrella of incest in many ways. Um, you know, there's an old, uh, there, there's a saying, um, you know, about about such relationships in um, rural India that, you you know, you marry, marry outside of your religion, marry outside of caste, marry, marry a cripple, marry, marry an old man, but don't marry someone from the same village. Uh, because, you know, um, it is believed that this is your brother or sister. Um, so that is one big taboo that they were uh, breaking by being together. So that's, so that's the story of, of Dawinder and Nitu. Um, I'd like to now move on to the second couple of your book, which is, you know, Monica and, and, and Arif, which is kind of tied to this conspiracy theory of love jihad that really kind of, um, I'm going to use the word energizes, but I don't feel like that that's the best word to use, but energize a lot, a lot of right-wing Hindu nationalists. Um, I wonder if you might talk about what this conspiracy theory of love jihad actually is and how that affected kind of Monica and Arif's relationship. Yeah. 
Um, so love jihad is a conspiracy theory that ha- that is not new. It's been around um, since the 1920s when the Hindutva movement was first being solidified. Um, and, um, you know, it kind of, it can be traced back to writings of um, prominent um, uh, Hindu nationalist leaders who, who, who essentially talked about um, the defilement of two sacred symbols. Um, in their mind, those two symbols are cows and women. Um, um, so, so Love Jihad essentially says um, that, Muslim men lure and marry Hindu women, as in make promises of false love, uh, lure Hindu women into marriage, um, get them pregnant, um, and create more Muslim children in order to water down the Hindu majority and eventually outnumber Hindus and make um, India part of, uh, you know, a Muslim homeland. Um this this is this is um, a belief that um, a lot of um, as you said um, a lot of right wing nationalists um, hold dearly and get energized with, um, but um, you know of course there's there's no there's no facts in this um, it has never been proven um, there have been. Um, there have been efforts that have been made um, by, um, you know, Hindu nationalists to create, um, you know, uh, literature around uh, love jihad. Um, pamphlets are distributed in a lot of, um, uh, you know, small towns or in Hindu neighborhoods, um, warning young women about the dangers of love jihad. Um, you know, um, I, I actually caught hold of one of those uh, while I was reporting in Nagpur. Um, it was a uh, um, a, a pamphlet that that showed a, a Muslim man, you know, clearly with, um, you know, wearing a cap, wearing a scalp cap, um, and and driving away a, a, a you know obviously Hindu woman, um, uh, and 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 then there were three outcomes that were displayed on uh, on on the cover page. One was um, you know selling the woman into prostitution, uh, like illegal trafficking. Uh, the third was forcing her to suicide, and um, and and uh, and the third was um, you know domestic abuse. Um, yeah, it uh, you know just really doomsday scenarios like these the uh, you know. Um, these pamphlets try to sell these doomsday scenarios to kind of create this uh, paranoia that um, uh, that Hindu men can't be trusted, and they are using their um, their uh, romantic uh, prowess or whatever to um, to lure Hindu women into marriage. So, so this is a completely. Um, uh, bizarre idea that has now gained more and more it, it, it well it should have been it should have stuck to the lunatic fringe of the of the Hindu right but you know sadly over the last few years it has become um, a, a mainstream idea that is being seriously discussed um, you know um, in circles everywhere um, so now with Monica and Arif Monica is a, a Muslim man Arif Sorry, I'm so sorry. We need to. Uh, I, I have to say that again. Monica is a, uh, a Hindu woman. Arif is a Muslim man. Um, they fall in love and find themselves stuck with an unwanted pregnancy. Um, even though abortion is legal in India, 
uh, they find it, um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, doctors will be reluctant to to perform the surgery. Um, so they decide that it's easiest for them to run away to be together. Um, when they run away to be together, Arif has big dreams about becoming a policeman and, you know, kind of hopes that um, he will be able to return to his village, you know, in his khaki uniform and, you know, kind of win all the respect and affection of his community that he has craved since he was a small child. Um, but what, what ends up happening is that they, their elopement kind of get entangled with um, the Bajrangdal. Um, a, a leader of the Bajrangdal hears a tip about the, uh, about their elopement and, um, you know, uh, rallies up a crowd Um it leads to an attack on Arif's relatives, um, you know, a massive demonstration outside the local police station where the crowd is clamoring to bring this couple back home. Um, and, you know, uh, search parties go fan out across the state to, to find them and bring them back. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's a really devastating development for uh, for Arif, who has dreams of becoming a policeman. Um, it's also a devastating development for Monica, um, you know, who feels responsible for, um, you know, all this destruction that has come upon his family. Um, but somehow um, it is, it is, you know, they, they find themselves, uh, because when they ran away, they weren't, you know, exactly in um, the kind of love that they had expected um, to fall in to fall in love with they weren't exactly in love um and um you know through through all these kind of rough developments they they find themselves coming closer and um you know kind of figuring it figuring out how to live with um you know this 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 new reality that is their life so maybe now let's kind of take some time to talk about the third relationship in, in the book which is um reshma and preeti you know they're they are different from us in the book. They have a lesbian relationship, um, which kind of brings in other pressures about tradition, about um, kind of norms around that. I guess, what's the conversation about LGBT rights in India? Um, is it different from the conversation about LGBT rights kind of in other places in the world? And and then how does that conversation kind of link into uh, Reshma and Preeti's story? Yeah. Um, so for... For the past uh, three decades, I want to say there there has been a large amount of activism around um, that has you know to call for the dismantling of this colonial era law, um, Section three seventy seven, uh, which um, conflicts homosexuality with sodomy and bestiality. Uh, there has been a huge amount of activism around that. Um, in 2009, the Delhi High Court actually uh, passed a judgment to decriminalize homosexuality. And that was a that was considered a victory um, for the LGBT rights movement in India. Uh, but shortly after that, the, um, the ruling was overturned. Um, finally, in 2018, um, the Supreme Court of India passed, um, you know, a verdict um, that decriminalized struck down section 377 which made for the first time in several decades um uh being an lgbt person was no longer a crime um this is this is um an interesting thing because um you know uh homophobia is um 
is 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 something that is that kind of came with colonialism in um into india um indian religious texts and mythology uh brims with references um to same sex love um there are stories of spirits that flow in and out of gendered bodies um make love to people of the same gender um and you know it's a it's a very gender fluid tradition um uh, uh you know mythologically and spiritually and religiously but of course the the public life of religious text is not the same as uh, uh as the actual text um so in india same sex love is treated as a dirty secret um it's not something that is um discussed openly um it is not something that is um um you know even uh, it, it, i can't even i can't even say it's a taboo because it's not even given uh, the dignity of being addressed as a real issue um um often if um a young person says that he has feelings for another man or a young woman says that she has feelings for someone of her own gender um the efforts will be made to to push that person into um you know a, a heteronormative marriage um uh you know what are known as and and often young people even in the diaspora will enter marriages of convenience where uh you know they marry someone of the opposite sex but then continue to live their authentic selves in private relationships um um so that that's essentially um what the state is uh in india but now with with priti and reshma they come from a part of india which is really far removed from the equal rights movement um you know even even words such as gay lesbian lgbt are not are not really in their vocabulary the way that they express their love to each other um are with uh, are with phrases and and terms that uh, are borrowed from popular culture um the way that they express their love to each other is you know things that they see in the movies for instance i want to live with you i want to die with you um i can't imagine um uh, a life without you um so that um you know that's why i wanted to focus on their stories because um to me um you know their their story kind of really illustrates the vast divide between um um uh, what what is happening you know in terms of policy and policy making and you know big debates that are happening in big cities and and the private lives of of people like reshma and preeti how unaffected they are by it so when section 377 gets struck down in new delhi reshma and preeti are working as room service staff in uh, a temple town named shirdi um and they actually break out into one of the most bitter fights of their relationships around that time um so while the law has finally recognized them as full human beings who are who have the rights as any other indian citizens to choose and be with whoever they like um you know their 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 private um experience is um you know is is still an undoing from um you know their own ideas of uh, what heteronormative relationships should look like um that is what i hoped um uh i would be able to illustrate by by spending time with uh, reshma and preeti to just show the the big difference um of um uh, of private lives um that that you know kind of pass in anonymity in small towns and villages this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in shopify's there to help you grow 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, speaking, speaking of the court, I mean, this is, this is a good segue into my next question, um, which is kind of what, like, the role that the courts, the legal system, what law enforcement, like, the role that they play in, at times, enforcing a lot of these norms, these prejudices, um definitely i know for dawinder nitu um the police are themselves like they they are themselves um hesitant to do anything to stop the the violent consequences against dawinder's family um but other times you know the courts maybe the 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 national courts involving the laws against homosexuality but also police maybe further away in the city center are much more sympathetic to um to to the couples and their families or the couples and and the families who are suffering the consequences of um, of social prejudice. I, I guess, kind of like what, in your view, in reporting the story, kind of kind of what role did did the legal system, did law enforcement, did the courts play on either side, both in kind of protecting and preserving these these norms, but also at times um, ruling in favor of of the couples and their. I guess, freedom to choose who they want to marry. Yeah. So I think this is one of the central tensions of this book. Um, India is essentially a place that thrives on two competing systems. One is the state and its laws that promises to protect individual rights, um, you know, fundamental rights of liberty, dignity, freedom, independence, uh, the right to choice. Um, But on the other hand, there is this invisible, vast, um, system of morality and tradition that has no clear rights and wrongs, but has very clear boundaries. Um, so young people, these young six people are constantly caught up in in the push and pull of um, laws and, you know, um, that, that promise one thing and tradition that says the other. Um, in Neetu and Davinder's case, for instance, um, the policemen that uh, were that are obliged by by law to protect them um, secretly harbor harbor feelings and thoughts and opinions that um, side with their families that they don't really believe that love marriage is um, a, you know should be should be a choice. They don't believe that um, they they think of it as as a selfish act that can upend the lives of families and communities and disturb, you know, the delicate balance on which this society stands. Um, um, in Arif and Monica's case, it is, on one hand, um, you know, uh, uh, the police that, um, it, they, you know, it's the, the police in Monica and Arif's story, like, are this uh, shape-shifting shape form. There is a police officer that... Um, sides with the Bajrangdal and harasses his um, his aunt constantly for more information about where they could be hiding. But then at the end, it is it is the legal system that um, that kind of um, provides the you know the final relief when all charges against them are dropped, the kidnapping charges against Arif are dropped, um, um, and you know they're given a clean chit to start their lives together. 
and also i think it's it's it, there's something to be said that for for a man like arif his only dream is to become a police officer because i think he sees it as um you know one of the um those the one of the greatest um institutions um of secular india like for him the indian constitution is the is the greatest document ever written because it promises him the same rights as um as other members of other religious communities i i think that's a beautiful thing because um he he wants to become a police officer to claim those rights even if reality and day to day circumstances constantly teach him something different uh, or co- constantly remind him that this is still not the case that he has the same rights and position as um you know a hindu man of his age for instance um in in reshma and preeti's story you know the, the law kind of looms large constantly because you know um just the fact that a a, a law can wipe out um their their, their very identity a, a a law can say that these are not real feelings and desires and th- these are these are um um they're not valid in the eyes of the law is something that is um a really diminishing um facet to live with right um so yeah um the law in that sense looms large and and at the end even if the law says something which is that uh it is no longer a criminal act to be a person who desires someone of the same same gender um the social life of that law is completely different people around them still believe that it is it is illegal it is wrong it is criminal to um uh, to love someone of the same gender so yeah i think at the essence of this book is this exact uh push and pull of um um the law telling you one thing but tradition telling you something else so you know all these in, in kind of reading your book you know all these relationships come under strain you know due to social pressure um their family members are subject to violence by other members of the community um other members of their family are not as accepting of their relationship precisely both both tradition and also because of the cost to other members of their family and not every person in the book handles this pressure well um there are a lot of fights a lot of dis- a lot of arguments um in times even verging kind of beyond that into things that are actions that suddenly seem quite troubling um i mean i mean you met all of these people you you talked you reported out their story i mean could you see kind of the the pressure being put on these various people on these various couples um and how that kind of affected their mental health and kind of the their the the um the status of their relationship yeah absolutely um you know wh- one of the the things about this book is that um the the young people that make these choices um i not don't exactly think them through so they they make them very fast very spontaneously and then the rest of the book dwells in the space where they kind of recalibrating with the consequences of those actions now the the consequences of those actions really affect them as much as they affect the people around them so in neetu and devinder's case for instance devinder's mother is attacked um is assaulted by neetu's family she is yeah physically assaulted ends up in the hospital with massive injuries takes months to recover their house is destroyed there is um uh, you know uh, all their belongings are you know kind of robbed and taken away um and most importantly they cannot 
even now go back to the to the village and try to sell the property which you know they they had lived in for most of their lives um in Arif and Monica's case, you know, there's all there is, um, you know, the the the, the ambushing by the Bajrangdal, and you know, just this constant threat of um, uh, his dreams being checkmated by this one act. Um, and in 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 Arif, uh, I mean, and in um, Preeti and Reshma's case, it's you know, it is it is a violence that's in very private. So there is this scepter of violence that looms large over all three of these stories and kind of like envelopes not only them but you know their loved ones um uh, into it um there is so much anger so much um you know regret sorrow feelings of betrayal um that um, um that all of them go through and their families member me- members go through for um towards these towards these young people you know um, a, a lot of them don't find it in themselves um, to forgive to forgive them for for um, for running away together uh, because it, because just the sheer consequences have been so vast. So, I want to end with um, maybe kind of taking a big picture view, um, kind of generated from from reading these stories. You know, I think there's there's always a risk when you think about these sorts of norms, these sorts of prejudices. Um, I think especially when it comes to countries like India, there's a risk that I think you read these books and you think it's limited to poor communities, more quote unquote backward communities. And those quotes are very much like there's definitely scare quotes around that. Um, but it feels like it would be it would be perhaps incorrect to kind of assume that that um, that that I guess these are being relegated out to kind of the countryside to remote areas. Uh, you know, several of the families in your book, I mean, they're comfortable. Um, they, they're maybe kind of comfortably middle class. I guess, how how pervasive are these norms, are these beliefs in middle class India and, and above? I would argue that these norms and beliefs are uh, pervasive across all sections of Indian society. In some cases, they might be um, even more in the upper classes um, because, you know, there's such a emphasis on stature and status um, that, um, you know, these taboos and, you know, the stakes uh, become larger um, for the middle and upwardly mobile classes. Um yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, the, especially uh, the prejudices and biases around class, even caste, 100%, community without a doubt, um, are, are very much present and uh, pervasive across um, upper and middle class India. I mean, have have these things changed since you did the lion's share of reporting for your book? Um, I mean, obviously, Hindu nationalism at least appears to be much more overt today. Um, yeah. but, but, but I guess how, how have these, have, have these norms and prejudices, have they changed since you've done, since you did most of the reporting for your book? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the, the book I reported and the book, uh, I mean, the time at which I reported the book and the time at which this book is coming out, um, the country's changed. Um, I, I, I wasn't fearful, um, reporting this love jihad angle when I was doing the work, but now that it is, um, being released in India, I'm definitely a little nervous. Um, you know, I just, I, I think that it is, um, it's just more 
that there, there's just a sort of muscular masculine um sort of energy around this um uh, political movement this narrative now and it's greater louder more belligerent um um than it was when i was you know even reporting this a couple years ago um without a doubt yeah um even cops in northern india i feel are um you know if if um, not uh, more powerful than they were then they're definitely still around they're definitely still influential um and of course um the biases around same sex love are as entrenched as they ever were so i think with that that ends our conversation with mansi choksi author of the newlyweds rearranging marriage and in modern india mansi i actually have two final questions for you which are uh where can people find your work and what might be next for you? What might be your next project? Oh uh, yeah. So people can find me on my website. It's mansichoksi.com. M-A-N-S-I-C-H-O-K-S-I. It has my email. If you drop me a note, I'll definitely reply. Um, and on Twitter and on Instagram, I'm at uh, mansi underscore choksi. M-A-N-S-I underscore C-H-O-K-S-I. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing next. Uh, <laughs> um, I hope I'm just uh, I'm just taking it all in at the moment, uh, but hopefully um, something exciting will come soon. Oh no! I mean, hey, pe- people definitely have appreciated when when guests on the show say, "I have no idea what's coming up next." They feel like yeah. it's a very honest answer. Um, yeah, I really have no idea. Um, <laughs> So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, Mansi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.